0: Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech, brought to you by Singular Talent, making higher and better for organisations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Benedict Cross, Head of Functional Genomics Screening at Horizon Discovery, joins us for this week's episode, in which we discuss the impact of CRISPR on drug discovery, why knowing what not to do can be the most significant thing you can learn, and how the outcry over GMO kick-started his career. I'm here this week with Benedict Cross of Horizon Discovery. Benedict, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Good to have you on. Thank you. To start with, can you tell us a little bit more about Horizon as a company and the work that you're doing here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, Horizon, we are a translational genomics company. We're based just north of Cambridge, UK. We've been around for just over 12 years, Mm -hmm. and um, in that time, it's fair to say that we've evolved substantially, growing from a very small biotech, of course, and the founding technology or or processes that we're working with is is in gene editing. Mm -hmm. Initially, that being with uh, RAAV, so recombinant adeno-associated virus, which was one of the kind of early robust tools to conduct gene editing. Um, And in our case, we're using it to manufacture um, cell tools to provide back to the academic and pharmaceutical community. So that is to say, we would be taking a specific genotype that might be found predominantly in, in multiple cancers, engineering cell systems to replicate that, yeah. and then providing that back as a, as a tool that, you know, you can start to explore selective responses of different chemi- uh, chemotherapeutic agents or or the like to say, well, how can I treat this cancer with this particular drug? Mm-hmm. Does it selectively kill the cancer and keep the healthy cells, cells perfectly viable? And those sorts of questions can be really easily addressed if you have those kinds of technologies. Um, but I would say five years ago, of course, when uh, CRISPR Technologies came on the mm-hmm. scene, everything changed for us as it did for many people and we became very, very heavily engaged in that kind of um, area of work. The company and now, as it stands today, we're about 400 strong. Right. Um, we have footprints uh, here in the UK as our headquarters and three sites in the US, including which has all been grown through organic growth and, and acquisitions for the most part. Sure, But a major part of our kind of, MA portfolio, so to speak, was the acquisition of a company called DarmCon, who uh, many people have been heard, heard of, um, especially in the academic sector, because they provide very nice uh, research tools that I think most people have encountered mm-hmm. from RAI and now more recently in, in CRISPR as well. So, <clears throat> as it stands, the company is split kind of roughly 50 50 towards um, selling reagents. Mm -hmm. building them, you know, manufacturing them from a a chemical synthesis perspective when it comes to DharmaCon and manufacturing diagnostic reference standards when it comes to some of the cell-based samples Um, and the other 50% being services, which is where I work. And the services part of the business is mostly in vitro, but some in vivo, so animal services as well. But most of what we do is in screening services, custom cell engineering uh, programs in primary tissues or iPSCs. So the more kind of complex stuff that's not quite so readily off the shelf. And where I work, uh, the part of the business that I'm, I'm based in is um, in what we would describe as functional genomic screening. Yes. Uh, so that's what I lead. Um, that uses both CRISPR and RNAi, but very much focused on CRISPR. Uh, and it uses some of the same tools and technologies that, that folks might have been familiar with uh, with CRISPR in that it is you know, based on being able to specifically edit genes to knock mm-hmm. them out or change their function or increase their uh, activity within an individual cell, but on a very, very large scale. So ultimately being able to ask very robust, maybe even hypothesis-free or unbiased questions about biology.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so a simple example would be, you know, how does uh, a given phenotype depend on a particular genotype, so a particular mm. gene signature? And you can ask that uh, in a very systematic way by uh, uh, sequentially, so to speak, eliminating each gene of the human genome, so it's like 20,000 or so genes, from an individual cell system, mm-hmm. and addressing whether or not that changes cell function. And you can do that in lots and lots of different ways, uh, and you can apply that principle to lots and lots of different research questions. And ultimately that's a kind of a fundamental trick of geneticists and cell biologists, sure. which is to say, if I take this gene away from the system, what changes in the way the cell behaves or maybe what changes in the way that disease manifests in that mm-hmm. in that model system and that can start to tell you some really interesting things about yes. biology and drug discovery as well yeah so being able to manipulate
0: those cell systems really must open some really fascinating doors it does it
1: absolutely does i would say maybe 80 percent of what we've done historically is in the oncology field and in cancer biology these with the sort of technology that we're using here with gene editing and those kind of questions of cell behaviour and phenotype, there's some low-hanging fruit in cancer biology. Mm-hmm. And um, this kind of functional genomic screening approach was really you know, taken up very quickly. The early adopters were all in the oncology field. And the reason that's quite simple, because it, when you're studying cancer, one of the main things you're interested in, you are interested in lots of complex aspects of cell behaviour. Sure you're kind of mostly interested in whether or not that cell dies or lives (laughs) (laughs) because that's what you're trying to do in cancer Uh, and it's a really easy marker for whether or not you're able to successfully treat eliminate and you know ultimately go down to drug discovery and it it so happens that the kinds of technologies which we're able to use with functional genomic screening approaches and with CRISPR in particular um, asking that question is the cell there or not is it dead or alive is really really easy Okay. incredibly robust Um, Mm. And so it, it was a big kind of wave of early adopters. And in fact, you see, you know, this publications is all the day. There was one was yesterday from the Sanger Institute, mm-hmm. which was a big contribution um, from Matt Carley's group um, to what was called the Cancer Dependency Map, which is all about saying, let's take every cancer that we can study, that we've got samples of and um, can maybe start to understand how it relates to the patients that you're hoping to ultimately treat, systematically mutate all the genes in the human genome, as mm-hmm. I've been describing, and see whether or not you can identify specific cancer dependencies. And that is a okay. very major global collaboration, you know, with you know, similar in sort of philosophy to the human genome sequencing program in that it's a kind of somewhat competitive and somewhat collaborative <laughs> engagement between um, uh, the Broad Institute and the Sanger Institute who are all kind of competing and collaborating and, and actually pharmaceutical companies who are mm-hmm. contributing as well to ultimately gain a huge data package which yes. covers you know the entire spectrum of possible cancer genotypes and really starts to build a foundational map to how to start to be able to treat them. Um, so there's still a lot of activity there uh, and a lot of the work we've done is with cancer biologists, mm-hmm. but we are increasingly moving into different biological fields as well and different disease areas because this technology is, there's a reason to limit it to cancer. It's no. just sort of, it's so evolved.
0: Yes, and that's the, that's the big target on people's minds, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and... You know, some of the audience out there will be fairly familiar with then how this impacts research and the, the advantages of this in research. But if people aren't, then, you know, what, what does a functional genomics approach mean to people conducting yeah,
1: research? it's a great question. Um, and you, they may not have had an opportunity to be involved in it, but I think it's pretty clear that it's growing in its uh, prevalence. I think functional genomics has become a big part of the way, uh, you know, certainly biotech and pharmaceutical companies think about disease in general. Mm-hmm. And that's noted by lots and lots of startup companies that sort of hang themselves on the CRISPR tag or even functional genomics, and the big pharma companies who have even strategically shifted quite substantially towards this. So, locally here in Cambridge or the UK, GSK, National Seneca have made very very substantial strategic changes mm-hmm. to make sure that functional genomics per se is a big part of how you're, they're starting to tackle diseases sure. and, and build their pipelines. And the reason for that, I think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna um, attribute that to CRISPR okay. because it's not that functional genomics is a new phenomenon, functional genomics is fundamental to understanding, you know, cell biology and has been for many years it was, you know most most kind of uh, frequently used early on in, in, in simpler model organisms, in, in yeast and C. elegans and, uh, you know um, much more straightforward genetic tools mm-hmm. but CRISPR is radically changed the kind of field and the 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 two things about it which are really important is that it's incredibly simple and quick to do sure uh, and it works really fantastically well (laughs) so it's an incredibly robust tool (laughs) and that really dramatically changed the way people think about functional genomics and and the kind of accessibility of functional genomics Mm -hmm. so but what is functional genomics I think is probably worth my at least attempting to describe but the way I think about it is um the opportunity or the ability to to couple phenotype or behaviour, cell behaviour, or um, disease behaviour to genotype and understand the genetic determinants of that cell behaviour, sure. and that can that can have an impact both in you know, understanding you know really deep fundamental properties of biology, but also maybe more immediately into drug discovery. And there are maybe you know multiple points within what you might describe as the drug discovery process from start to finish. At which this kind of technology can be really quite powerful and potentially mm-hmm. transformative. And in fact, I think, uh, I often think it's one of the very few technologies that I can think of which really spans a 15 year cycle of discovery to delivery of a, of a drug to a patient Absolutely. in a clinic. Uh, the number of times at which you might have an opportunity to benefit from this kind of approach or from CRISPR or functional in general is quite, it's quite surprising uh, for any kind of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a few examples on that spectrum. You might think of an opportunity to understand um, what genes you might want to target in order to develop therapeutics. And that's the very start of a journey of drug discovery. And that can be addressed as sort of intimated with a very unbiased perspective. You don't have to say, I'm only interested in kinases because I know I can drug them. You Mm -hmm. don't say, I'm only interested in GPCRs because that's what I'm familiar with. And, And as we were discussing earlier, a big problem in drug discovery is a sort of Confluence on a very small area of the genome yes. of targets, which are ultimately, you know, really going to, you know, uh, be focused on by the pharmaceutical uh, big players. And this kind of, you know, unbiased um, CRISPR based approach allows you to say, well, let's just forget about that. Let's say we don't know where we're starting. Let's just say what targets could appear mm. genes that is, which we could ultimately start to understand how they influence disease, and maybe then subsequently build on. Um, the therapeutic potential of that discovery right? Um, and this kind of tool allows you to ask that question to say okay fine I've got this disease it's Alzheimer's I've got a model which allows me to study Alzheimer's in, in the lab in vitro and now I want to say what genes affect it and how can I influence yes. it in this cell system and that, that principle can be applied to lots and lots of different disease areas as long as you've got those two things the technology to interrogate it at the genetic mm-hmm. level, like well, like we can now with CRISPR, and a system which allows you to model that disease in vitro, or even potentially in in somewhat simple in vivo systems as well. Yeah, I see. So those questions early on could be addressed really nicely, and then if you go all the way to kind of the kind of preclinical phase, mm-hmm. let's say you're in cancer biology again, and your goal now is you've got a great you've got a great chemical asset, you've got a drug that works really really well, it treats you know pancreatic cancers in the lab and you've got some kind of early in vivo data that gives you Mm -hmm. some confidence this is really going to transition well uh, to later translational stages. Um, But before you want to start doing that clinical trial part, which is going to cost you tens and tens of millions of dollars, maybe you want to start to address that kind of unknown space and say, well, what happens when I put this into a patient population Am I going to be able am I suddenly going to see that there's, there's lots and lots of patient cohorts that just simply don't respond to this drug? Or maybe mm-hmm. even respond really negatively? Uh, or indeed, the opposite question maybe there's some patient uh, groups, some genotypes, or some, some specific, specific kinds of tumours, you know, which might be defined by the genetic basis of those tumours, yeah. which really respond brilliantly to this drug. And those are the people we should be trying to find early on. Uh, so, this is precision medicine. And you get the opportunity with the CRISPR based sort of screening technology to ask that question before you go anywhere near the clinic and start to predict how patients are going to respond by taking a somewhat unbiased perspective and saying, let's look at all 20,000 genes, mutate them in this one relatively straightforward and relatively inexpensive experiment, especially compared to what's about to happen in the clinic, uh, and see whether or not we can start to identify patient cohorts which selectively do respond and don't respond and design a better clinical trial and go towards that possibility of uh, targeting stratified medicines to the right groups. Yes. Uh, that's a really, really valuable point to do that experiment because economically and ultimately to the hopeful success of your clinical trial, you've got a lot of potential gain there. Um, all the sort of steps in between, you might also be able to design an experiment which uh, a functional genomics approach could help you understand your process better or define a better mm-hmm. path forward. And even in manufacture, when you talk about biologics, a lot of these are tools which are made by cells, cell factories. Yes. You can even use this kind of technology there to say, maybe I can improve my biology. Manufacture, okay, and there again, you know, even a one percent or a five percent gain in say the the the, uh, the 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 titers that you can get from your biologics in a in a in a chose system, you're kind of putting in a, in a sort of bioprocessing system. That could be a huge <laughs> that's a huge margin win for of a company course, yeah. that's selling that and trying to make that and push that you know into in all the all the uh, tracks for commerce that they want to push it into. Yes, so lots of uh, lots of points at which we are working with people actively. Um, that spread through that whole R&D pipeline. Um, so it's a diverse field. <laughs> mm, yeah, sounds like it. But so, so early on, it's really about
0: identifying, I guess, maybe pathways you wouldn't have identified or, or targets or mechanisms that you might not have thought of. Yeah, right? I think uh, so. And testing those. And then later on, it's about, I guess, increasing the
1: accuracy of what you're doing. And, mm-hmm. and you're never going to eliminate the risk, right? But eliminating some of the yeah, risk, I exactly. Just targeting it better. And that aspect of the early part, is something we're really interested in seeing develop because, as I said, this is not a new principle. It's not that this is suddenly something that we can do that we could never have done previously before. It's that it works many, many times better than was previously possible to do sure. before CRISPR came along and transformed that whole field in terms of the quality of the data, the kind of penetrance, the effect, the, the clarity of these very, very complex, you know, these are big data sets. That kind of, most of the experiments we do have millions and millions of you know data points You know mm-hmm. in the labs downstairs. We're growing you know very many hundreds of millions of cells. Often a single experiment is a sort of tennis course worth of monolayer of of, of cells in in flasks. So these are big experiments and they give you a lot, a lot of data. Uh, And you need to be able to, you know, extract meaningful interpretations of that data. And that means you need at least quality, clarity, and secondly, tools to be able to understand it, you know, ways to triage and process and learn that data maybe from analytical approaches which are developing all the time um, and that's what's really changed with CRISPR is that you kind of we hit this sweet spot where you know all of those technologies and there's so much development in machine learning and AI to help you better statistically qualify the things you're getting out of these huge mm-hmm. data sets and having a really really robust data set at the beginning which is what's made very possible with a CRISPR based approach yes uh, has made that question uh not a risky question to ask it's not that you're going to enter into that experiment which is quite a big undertaking and get nothing back the likelihood is you're going to get something interesting out of it, it might not yeah. be the thing you wanted it might not even, <laughs> be, the, might not even be the thing that you can actually take forward you know, in your pathway right. but ultimately you're going to find something out which you can probably have a high degree of confidence in and you know before the sort of five year ago threshold when Chris really changed things that wasn't necessarily the case uh, there were other tools that could do this, though, as I said, there's other model organisms that are non-humans mm-hmm. and not quite so closely related to what you want to try and do ultimately in developing new therapeutics. Um, but they were giving us that immediate opportunity to learn something that we can really depend on. Yes, for, for drug discovery, and um, I think that's been a big, big change overall in how people think about these things. Certainly. So I suppose I suppose
0: ultimately, it's it's providing greater confidence at those key decision-making points. Yeah,
1: I think so, yeah. And, you know, for 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 drug discovery, maybe one of the sort of coincidental um, development is around our ability as a sort of scientific community to develop drugs. Mm-hmm. And it's not traditional anymore. It's not simple, small molecule inhibitors of, of kinase domains. There's lots and lots of different ways in which you can start to build a therapeutic program, um, which includes, you know, Things like protax, you know, drugging the Mm -hmm. undruggable in in ways we didn't think of previously, novel ways that uh, chemists have been able to interrogate different functional domains and different enzymatic shapes, and also CRISPR therapeutics. CRISPR itself, as well as a discovery tool, has massive potential for actually directly uh, treating genetic disease. Um, And at the moment, that is about kind of rare genetic disease, not cancers as such, but Mm -hmm. um, diseases at which you're able to directly edit somatic cells to change the, the function and eliminate the disease in those particular tissues. But that will probably grow and grow into all sorts of different diseases that we haven't really predicted. We'll be able yes. to immediately you know, deploy this kind of gene therapy approach. And that's an extremely exciting place to be. Um, we're not involved in that directly, but we work with no, people who course. are. And our kind of, you know, R&D approach supports a lot of the decisions which are going on in that space. And so it's very exciting
0: to see. Yeah, And I suppose even if we don't fully understand why yet... There are some people who are more susceptible to getting ill than others. There are some families who are more susceptible mm. to cancer than others. So yeah. there must be genetic components. Yeah, yeah, the
1: population aspect of it is also really yeah. exciting to see how we can learn from that. As uh, the data sets get get bigger, as I say, we get more confidence in sure. them. Uh, I think that's really quite meaningful.
0: Yes. Well, we'll come back to some of the technologies <laughs> that are that are exciting <laughs> you uh, before we before we get too deep into it, because I could talk about this all, all day. Um uh, Think about your role, Benedict, yeah. so you're the head of Functional Genomic Screening, so you run the group here. That's right. Tell us a bit about your job, tell us a bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis and, and okay. the things that take up your time.
1: So the group um, that, I'm, that I'm leading at the moment has, has grown very substantially over the past four years from, from nothing, um, from when we started first looking into these uh, technologies and seeing how we could work with um, our collaborators in the pharma and biotech and academic mm-hmm. communities. So we work as a, a CRO, it's a contract research organisation, which means that people come to us to say, we've got this question, we want to we us to understand that, we know you've got this kind of technology and you've built these platforms and pipelines and expertise in, in doing these kinds of things, how can you do that? Um, and so a lot of my role, I mean, I have a kind of management role as well, so I'm trying sure. to support this group and, and, and help this grow into a very sustainable and sort of slick organisation, especially as we scale up and look to kind of, Improve on the industrialization efforts we've made in this, you know, processing this technology in an efficient way. So there's a lot of a lot of gains to be made there. And i have got a fantastic team uh, working around me. Yeah, I'm very lucky to work with, um, you know, from the past five years, a lot of the same people who've grown with the group and grown with the technology and have got a huge amount of expertise mm-hmm. uh, in building this. Not just from you know the practical sense and the biology, but also about how to how to work in a you know in a really streamlined and robust fashion with this kind of technology. Yes. So a lot of my job is to try and improve that and and help people um, and help us grow and evolve that that platform as much as possible. But uh, a lot of it is uh, kind of external facing, I guess, as well. So working with our commercial team, working with the product managers um, and directly interacting with the people who want to work with us, the scientific teams across the world um, who have heard about this technology and heard about us being able to hopefully help them with it. And helping them design their experiments, yeah. <laughs> ultimately because they are complicated. Uh, there are there's a lot of knowledge that you need to kind of even start to think about what's possible, what's what's, you know, what's uh, plausible, um, and kind of what are the expectations from doing these kinds of things. And you know we're fortunate enough to have you know hundreds and hundreds of these screens in our back pocket, and we can impart kind of a lot of mm. the knowledge that we have built to try and help people get better answers out of their experiments, and ultimately then do them for them to a certain extent. So there's a huge amount of uh, consultancy, really, a huge amount of talking to people, learning yes. about what they're doing and how they're doing it, and trying to you know, advise and recommend uh, the best way forward, which is extremely interesting, as you'd imagine. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Very privileged to get exposure to lots of different people's philosophies about how to do drug discovery, mm-hmm. lots of different points in the process, as we've discussed, and and how you know this kind of technology might be helpful for them. So a lot of my time is is, is actually spent in that kind of role. Okay. Um, what else do I do? <laughs> i sure I do something else as well. <laughs> no,
0: but that's a really interesting point. The the consultancy part, as you say, you know, gives you a lot of insight into what people do. And I suppose you must get um, companies and clients come to you saying, listen, we think we could benefit from this approach, but we're not 100% sure how. Mm-hmm. Can you take a look at what we're doing? And
1: Yeah, I, we, we do. And, you know, which is extremely interesting to do. But I think... Uh, one of the one of the main things we've we've learned about um, how best to use this kind of technology is you know the, we certainly do need to lean on our, our experience as much as possible. And whilst there is a temptation and I will, I will have to con- confess to this to um, a man with a hammer. To a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. <laughs> there is an element of that, that to a man with a Christmas green, <laughs> every problem has a potential solution yeah, sure. that revolves around a green. screen. And that's surprisingly frequently true. Right. But nevertheless, a lot of our role is about telling people, you know, where things aren't gonna work and recommend. So hang on a minute, you know. Yes, this is this is possible, but maybe you'll get more out of the experimental approach if you do it in this way, you know. So we've gotta got guide people in the right direction, because ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, people come to us because you know we are hopefully going to help them get to success and so we aren't really a kind of one one size fits all there's a lot of kind of yeah. say, custom thought about around it and that requires a sort of a depth of experience within the group and and you know that's around the technology but also around disease areas so yes of course we have 12 to 15 of us who all come from completely different areas of, of, of biology there's there are cancer biologists but there are lots of people from neuroscience and and, and other all sorts of metabolic disease pathways as well working on um, from their academic careers and we bring that collective experience to everybody's problems so when, mm-hmm. we, when we find out what people are interested in then we assemble the appropriate team if we possibly can um, to come and address those questions and try and find the best way forward and yes and that kind of you know making sure we have that that rigor that scientific rigor and integrity so that we're not leading people down the wrong path uh, is really, really important to us but it does also so happen that there are a lot of things you can, <laughs> you know, you can do with it. Yeah, I'm sure. Which, which is quite, quite edifying. Yeah, Good.
0: <laughs> Good. Um, your point there about um, having lots of people from different backgrounds here actually is a fantastic link to my next question, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, tell us a bit about your route to where you are today. And I always like to start with a question that people find a little no. bit tricky, but cast your mind back, if you can, to... Your early memories of being interested in science and how you got started on that.
1: Mm. Oh, well, that's actually quite quite easy for me, I to say, because um, that I don't want to go back too far the the, 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 the life story <laughs> and such. But that does actually start in my um, in my school years. Uh-huh. So I um, I had a slightly unusual schooling in that I went to a community school. Um, the Maharishi school so we had um, we built that and my, my parents my friends parents could sort have of built a community mm-hmm. up in the Northwest which um, we had um, a very very different set of sort of principles and guidance um, from um, spiritual leaders um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who is a, an Indian guru uh-huh. popular in the 60s and um, all my hippie friends and parents um, we very into that. Sure. And we built a whole community around that. So I, very, I had obviously a very, very different kind of education. Uh-huh. Obviously, we we did IGCCs and everything else. We learned about lots of other things. We did mm-hmm. did lots of Indian philosophy. You know, we learned about Jyotish, which is sort of, uh, you know, astrology. And sand, we Sanskrit, all sorts of crazy stuff, which um, at the time had absolutely nothing to do with science. But it did give me um, a certain perspective on critical thinking <laughs> and evaluating you okay, know, yeah. what you're taught from, a, yeah. from um, you know, from as an agnostic perspective objectively as you possibly can. And it happened to coincide, I don't know if you remember back in the late 90s, with a certain degree of, um, uh, maybe hypochondria is a too strong word, around genetic engineering. The, right. the whole GMO crops thing was coming in yes. and It's fair to say that the community I was in had a strong feeling about that, and they weren't happy about it. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad had a genetics PhD and also didn't like it. Okay. And whilst there was a long period of time when, as you might expect, I took a certain degree, of this is rich, there was a part of me who was thinking, I'm not completely convinced this is what it's it's cracked up to be. And I went through uh, my A-levels and to do genetics as a, a degree, Pretty much to try and figure that stuff out, um, and it, it didn't take me too long. I think actually, <laughs> with, with a bit more a bit more background, it was right. quite clear to see that whilst there's lots and lots of things to be you know, concerned about, from certainly from a commercial, from a safety perspective, on some aspects of GMO, there was a lot that was poorly communicated and badly reported, and mm-hmm. um, it was a very interesting thing to start to sort of deconstruct. Yes. And that's why that's why I went to do genetics. That's why I went into science. I I, I simply wanted to try and understand that a bit better. And um, whilst I had um, my PhD training, there was more in biochemistry. When mm-hmm. um, I went, I was at the Sanger Institute as part of my uh, undergraduate career, and I went back towards sort of maybe not directly in genetics, but chemical genetics as part of my postdoc here at Cambridge, okay. working with um, David Ron, who is um, who discovered a transcription factor called XBP1, which is part of the unfolded protein response. So mm-hmm. a very fundamental part of cell biology, present in, you know, All eukaryotes and some prokaryotic pathways that look similar, and um, it was not you know directly related to a disease area, it was about understanding you know biology at a very kind of fundamental level. It was in each step of my career from kind of you know my, my decision to decide to go and do genetics to going to do my PhD. Uh, with Steve High, which is more kind of biochemistry, to going to work with David Ron. They, they were very kind of micro decisions. They were not part of a strategic plan. No, sure. <laughs> I, was kind of, I was going with my interest at that time. Yes. Uh, and to a certain extent, I'm led, I was led by the people I was working with. I went to work with both Steve and David because I really, really liked them. They were very inspirational people. Mm-hmm. They were fantastic individuals to work with, and I knew I could learn a lot. And so it was a decision about that step only, not the yes. big picture, not the strategy, where am I trying to go? Um, but I had a, you know, a, unfortunately, a really, really good training in both those places, um, and I got involved with David in um, in large scale screening activities uh, and understanding, you know, data sets, how we can build, you know, at that stage was about we were discovering tool compounds which could ultimately move into the clinic and maybe we could learn quite a lot from them. Okay. But we were interested in from a, from a very academic perspective. We wanted to know about this part of biology and actually what what kind. Of, occurred was that at the end of that process we had this we had a lovely paper we had lots of lo- really good data lots of which didn't go into the paper and um we had what could have been a really really exciting opportunity in drug discovery but there wasn't maybe the interest in in in, in the academic sector to go that way it was more well we've got the kind of paper let's move on and do right, something yeah. different and i was certainly wasn't in the position i wasn't trained enough to understand how to turn that into drug discovery but it did pique my interest in translational aspects of research. sure. Um, and so at that point, um, I had actually a, a really great position with David, I had a seven year position as part of one of his huge welcome uh, grants that he got from moving over from New York to Cambridge at that point, and we were, uh, we were the first postdocs in his lab. Mm. So we helped build that, but um, we had a, you know, lots and lots of opportunities to stay, but actually after three years I already decided <laughs> that I wanted to go and do <laughs> something more translational. So I took a slightly risky decision and I moved to a translational group within the university. Um, okay. there was a spin-out company, It's part in San Francisco and I spent quite a bit of time over there in San Mateo um, actually just behind the LinkedIn offices which we were talking about yeah uh, yes okay um, which was unbelievably eye-opening and transformative almost entirely a negative experience during the time really but yeah it was not uh, it was not a company I wanted ultimately to be part of yes uh, it was not an environment that was you know productive and inspirational <laughs> anyway it was actually quite a, poor environment there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of the morale was very very okay. bad in the, in the company and, and there was a lot of kind of uh, support within the kind of group but there was some cultures that had developed which were actually quite toxic I would describe right, I see. and I didn't I didn't enjoy that aspect of it at all uh, I look back on it now I only say there a year and I'll come on to Horizon in a minute As uh, probably one of the most important years of my life uh, in terms of my career mm. um, it was a difficult time but sure. I learned phenomenal amount <laughs> about not just the biotech, you know, sector, um, you know, actually it's not translated to other companies, of course, but, you know, but how people interact, right? Individuals, right. You know, how everybody um, within a kind of, a, that was a relatively small company, but it still had structure to it to a certain extent and lots of different roles in it. And the way people interacted, the way decisions were made, the way leadership manifested, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, lots of this was things that I thought, that's an, that's an observation that is extremely important because I I'm want to make sure I never do that <laughs> anyway, Every <laughs> again I hope to to even avoid that. Sure. But that is almost that's almost the most useful thing. Yeah, of course. Um, and in fact that's one of the things David Ron very fond of it, you know, from an academic perspective, not not in terms of management, but in terms of decisions. One of the most useful decisions you can ever make is about what not to do. Yes. You know, the most clinical decision you can make in a research path is that there's a it's a dead end. And mm-hmm. you move on, you forget about it as so quickly as possible, you learn the negative answer. And you can take that out of your out of your strategic plan yes. from a career perspective. There was a lot of that, and <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was quite an interesting, good, sort of, yeah, <laughs> interesting year. Um, so at, at, at that point, I came to Ryzen, right? And how did I come to Ryzen? Um, was a lot about uh, my network because um, there was a lot of people here that I already knew. Um, one of the, the main reasons I came was because. Um, Chris Lowe, who I um, was postdocing with when I was with David, he was in the lab next door, who uh, had been here for about a year and a half, two years mm-hmm. by that point. where the company was about fifty or sixty size, big, maybe a little bit bigger. And he came in as a scientist. Uh, and he must have been here for six or seven years now. He's now head of RO, so he leads sort of 200, <laughs> 200 scientists globally. Sure. So he's really had a fantastic, you know, growth in his career here yes. and learned enormous an amount. And he was already on that journey at that point and because horizon sort of the technology actually resonated really well with my kind of experience both in sort of screening and genetics it kind of felt like a perfect fit but i won't say that again it wasn't a strategic decision there's always opportunity based decisions and serendipity to an extent and you know what really pushed me over the edge because when i started looking for those positions there was you you, you sometimes get into positions where you might have been applying for jobs for six months and nothing happens and suddenly you get three offers, and you have to you have to make a tough decision about <laughs> yes. where, which way to go. And what really swung it for me at that point was was the people. You know that made a huge difference. I mm. had the opportunity at that point to have, you know met and spent a lot of time with uh, John Moore, who at that time was our CSO, and of course I knew Chris and and uh, some of the other senior leadership people I'd spent some time with, and some of the scientific team who were, you know had already started To um, spend some uh, good time to understand how they thought about the horizon yeah. how they thought about the, the environment here and that was extremely valuable uh, into making that decision because I knew that given where I was this was probably the most dramatic shift away from the difficulty that I'd been having in one position to yeah. something which was potentially full of so much more opportunity um, that is also the big leap that you know, whilst I had a sort of trans, an intermediate year, somewhat translational company with a biotech arm to it, you know, Horizon's a proper biotech company, it's proper yes. industry, and yes. we are, you know, properly commercial actually. And uh, as I described, a lot of the role I have is a very kind of commercial aspect mm-hmm. of discovery research. And um, that transition was also really, really interesting and exciting. Yes. Um,
0: what, and, what did you find about that? What were your observations?
1: So that, that, that was. You know, I remember starting in twenty thirteen, and uh, as a as a senior scientist then, and um, so I was a cell biologist, and working, you know, with uh, straight away on a very very big project, a major alliance with a major pharma company. And within sort of two three months, I needed to go over to Boston to to meet. But I started this huge number of experiments. Right, <laughs> I had I think I had forty or fifty flasks of uh, you know different genotypes. I think I was doing SHRA and those ones before CRISPR really kicked off. Um, I'd started this enormous amount of work. I had to start it because we were on tight timelines. And But then I had to disappear. And of course, yes. to my academic, I was like, what the hell? This is terrible. Am I gonna, I've got to somehow persuade these poor people to come and help me out with this work. Before I had even an opportunity to go down that route, uh, it had almost partially be, <laughs> been resolved for me. And people would already come over and said, well, I'll take this. I'll yeah. do this. This person over here is going to do this. We've made this schedule. You know, they knew I was, was fairly new. And I had this fantastic sense of support right. immediately and that's what everybody tells you is the difference between academia and industry which is in academia you're pursuing your own career you're working collaboratively i felt like i was hugely collaborative as opposed to working with chemists and physicists and you know it was it felt like a really dynamic collaborative environment but the reality is it isn't and right. only, <laughs> it, it, only when you come to and there's only one currency of success which is kind of papers and you know academic career yeah okay in industry it's totally different there's many, many currencies of success and there's many, many uh, ways in which reward is imparted to a certain extent. And that was one of the first and most, you know, fantastic things I observed, mm-hmm. was that this is an amazing group of people who were you know really, really willing to be supportive, not because they liked me. They weren't doing me any favors. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but they, they, you know, they understood that it was a shared goal, sure. and it was a shared responsibility. Yes. And that we all had, you know, the ambitions to get a certain set of experiments done, um, and we were going to be supporting one another in doing yeah. that. And that was unbelievably, you know, um, rewarding and enjoyable to work in that environment. And I don't think it's unique. I think it's, there's certain specialness associated with any group, and, you know, sometimes it's more special than others. I think, yeah, of course. You know, Horizon is a special place to work, and the group that uh, I work in I feel like, you know, has got, you know, a, a really, really great culture of that still. Uh, but I think that in general is a principle of industrial research, and mm. as well as all sort of, you know, efficiencies and commercialisation and goals towards, you know, getting something kind of really translational yeah, yeah. to benefit patients ultimately. That journey of the, you know, the, your day-to-day life has the potential to be a, a very, very different um, culture. And I think that was something that really, really mm. you know piqued my interest. And then I think being fulfilled by that was a, a big reason to why I've been able to, you know, grow my career and be successful here. Myself and also hopefully ultimately for what we're trying to do with the, yes. with the technology we're using. Yeah, it's interesting. I think
0: um, when it's done well, the biggest difference between a company and just a group of people is that they're all pulling in the same direction, yeah. right? And, yeah. and that you will help out and you will chip in. Yeah. Yeah, of course, you've all got your own bits
1: to do. But... Yeah, we've all got our own bits and pieces of responsibility and accountability and having that, you know, is really, really important to everybody's sense of satisfaction yeah. and for people's motivation and for you know, my own independent. I need my own things. That it's up to me to succeed in, of course. But I'm supported and, you know, back to lessons learned, that's one of the major things is that, you know, I, I know now, finally, <laughs> that I certainly can't do everything, yeah. you know, and it's really, you know, being able to collaborate effectively and know people's strengths and, you know, support one another where, you know, there are kind of, you know, mutually beneficial opportunities to do so is, is a really satisfactory way mm-hmm. to work and, you know, ultimately, I think probably a lot more efficient. Absolutely. So let's talk about a topic
0: that um, I am very uh, interested in, and I know you are as well. Um, what you get an opportunity to see lots and lots of different things that are happening in the industry from a from a drug discovery point of view, from a scientific point of view, and from a technology point of view. Yeah, what's out there that's really exciting at the moment? What are you excited about?
1: That is a great question. Um, so I mean, a lot of the technologies we work on, we 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 and I think are are very exciting. But mm. maybe the more kind of explicit way of um, addressing that thought process is what are people doing with it what are people learning yes um, and I think that um, we and others have become increasingly interested in um, the immune system to a certain extent and it's, and its therapeutic potential I think that's a, obviously a big trend in cancer biology but also mm-hmm. in, you know, in other areas of um, uh, diseases which can potentially benefit from a better understanding of how immunology works um, and so we've been trying to hone some of the tools be able to us to work with immune cell systems to edit them effectively and to do screens with them and learn from again from that sort of fundamental perspective how the immune system functions and what can we do to manipulate it yes one of a better word to to improve you know therapeutic potential um that's something we're really just starting to get in interested in and Mm involved in here we're starting to work with more and more people and some of the tools that come with that are really really interesting and have lots of potential one of the things I'll, I'll cite as a sort of data component as something we're really excited about is um, the, the marrying up of gene editing technologies and single-cell biology. Okay. So single-cell biology is, is is also, you know, gaining a huge amount of critical mass because it it's all driven by technology and what we can do and what we can understand, and it's driven by data, as I'll come to in a minute. But what you can start to do now, the kinds of experiments that we can start to do now is we can say, well, let's take gene editing, Mm -hmm. let's take it on a huge scale. Let's take hundreds and thousands of different individual loci that we're going to edit simultaneously. But now let's look at each of those edits on a single cell level. And on each of those single cells, let's start to look at, you know, whole transcriptomic level sequencing with RNA-seq. So we're getting these huge gene signatures. So we're not only starting to be uh, agnostic or unbiased at the level of the gene perturbation Mm -hmm. that we're saying, I want to see what this gene does and that gene does and that gene does. We're also starting to be unbiased and agnostic on the things we're learning, what it does. I.e. that we're not just saying is the cell alive or dead, is the disease present or absent. We're saying what is happening to that cell in terms of its signatures, okay. the pathways, the, the transcriptomic level data that's you know very deep um, gives you huge insights into cell biology generally. And rather than looking for one outstanding sort of response of one particular level, you know genes expression or something else like that. Now you're saying, well, well, what are all these little subtle things? Mm. Maybe I'm looking at an entire pathway at which each is only changing by 2 or 3 or 5%. But collectively, they're having an entirely, you know, a huge remodeling impact on the way that cell is behaving. And those data sets are really, really powerful when it comes to thinking about lots of diseases. Because lots of diseases, like I say, unlike cancer, aren't well modelled by one thing that happens. or doesn't happen. And they're much more common. We're much earlier on in understanding them at all. And so being able to say, well, let's look at a big picture let's look at a signature and maybe that'll tell us about the disease and then also address it with a sort of you know a CRISPR based sort of interrogation Mm -hmm. uh, is really really exciting it's very data dependent though and uh, (laughs) this is one of the things we've learned is that as you move into that level of single cell biology and these deep data sets you actually start to completely you need a sort of brain shift Right. In how you think about what that data is. Yes. Or what it looks like. We had a similar sort of shift when we moved to, you know, looking at the whole genome instead of looking at one gene at a time. And now we're going again on taking kind of huge numbers of genes and looking at huge numbers of outputs in terms mm-hmm. of the biology. Um and you don't you can go through it and say, this gene's doing that, that gene's doing this, this gene's doing that. But actually the way these data are most adequately handled, because they're so kind of multi-parametric, yes. is to look at it from a much higher altitude and use machine learning to say, okay, okay, algorithms, you tell me what's similar about this cell and that cell. I see, yeah. And you've got all this data, yeah. we've trained it, you know, there are lots of different um, you know uh, evolutions of print component analysis that allow you to take very multifactorial data and come up with something which humans can visually interpret, yes. as well as looking at the data. And That transition of being able to do that with, with the statistical tools and, and data processing that we now have is really really exciting. Uh, but again, it's a completely different way of thinking about biology because mm-hmm. you're sort of you're always going back to thinking about emergent properties. <laughs> it's almost sort of you know, it always feels a bit like going back to 50 years ago when you didn't necessarily have a clear understanding of what you were measuring, and sure. you're just looking at something kind of arbitrarily or abstractly describing as it is cell behavior. We're kind of thinking about cells in that point to a certain extent as well. Um, which is actually really exciting because mm. I mean that will change over time if we get better ways to interrogate this data. But you know, in terms of having a, a paradigm shift and you know being able to do new things, that's that's very exciting.
0: Yeah. I suppose it's almost like the leap into quantum physics, isn't it? Is not its they has been able to go beyond well, we know it works. We're not one hundred percent sure why. To well, let's let's find out why. Let's yeah. look at it in that much detail that we find out why, what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, Exactly that that huge amount of extra data is uh, is going to be a big part of um, how people make big decisions mm-hmm. in, in, in drug discovery in the times to come. And again, as I said, we're not we're not directly involved in therapeutics in terms of what's exciting about therapeutics. Um, I think that. So we are, we are getting involved in base editing. Okay. So base editing is where you can, well, base editing per se can be used in lots of different flavours, but when it comes to taking CRISPR, it's a, it's a way of taking the enzymes used traditionally in CRISPR, um, deactivating them so they're not cutting DNA in a way anyway anymore in the way that most people think of CRISPR as functioning, mm-hmm. and instead are uh, you tag on enzymes which do something different. Yes. And base editing then allows you to make very specific um, you know, polymorphisms occur in cells. So now you don't worry about, quite so much anyway about the damage that you might induce if you're thinking about using CRISPR in a gene therapy perspective. You're not quite so worried about this wonderful enzyme as it is going rogue in a a patient's body and doing all sorts of dangerous things and having all sorts of safety implications. Um, And you can be much more precise about what you're doing. And when it comes to, um, you know, certainly monogenic diseases, um, there are lots of, you know, very, very well described genotypes, which are, you know, entirely, um, causative when it comes to, to diseases, and it you, you don't need much, you don't need to change that much. Um and so these kinds of technologies, as they as they start to come to fruition, are going to be really exciting. Mm. And, um, you know, there is a lot of hype around CRISPR. There's no you yes. no, can pretend otherwise. And I am certainly involved in that world. <laughs> but it nevertheless strikes me as that the hype isn't quite it's not just hype. I mean it's not it's not totally unfounded. There is a, a real serious amount of potential and I think anybody can see from the kind of growth and, you know, uh, sort of um, omnipresence of CRISPR, Mm -hmm. there must be something to it. right? I've never seen a technology, certainly in my lifetime, and if I think, try to think historically, I don't think there is any that have gone from, you know, the formative discoveries of translating what was known into mammalian systems back in 2013, to being in every single biology lab, yeah. globally, you know, pretty much, um, within four, yeah, two or three, four or five years. Unbelievable mm-hmm. growth, and that's that's because it's, it's, a, it's a good tool, and it's and it's it not just research the therapy side of things is really going to come uh, in a big wave, I think, in the next four or five years. Yes,
0: and we may start to see some of the same sort of outcry that we saw about we, GMO. We <laughs> may well, and inevitably
1: there's, there is lots of unspoken stuff here about where yeah. we need to be responsible. Of course, there's also of stories. stories about unethical uses and dangerous uses of these kinds of technologies, I think that the kind of the regulatory uh, sort of principles at least globally are being at least discussed in the right levels, in the right forums, and I think the approaches are broadly, you know, probably certainly the regulatory community are broadly responsible. Mm-hmm. But it is a technology which is very easy to get hold of. You know, this is a kind of tool that, you know, you have hackers in garages buying things off eBay and, and you can do things with it. Yes. Because it works really well. It's quite simple. So there's going to be there's going to be circumstances which we're we're all going to be uncomfortable with mm-hmm. think, arising, but from a therapeutic perspective, the proofs of concept are going to come from things where we have to make a a, a you know a somewhat pragmatic choice about cost benefit with, where there's diseases which have no other therapeutic potential yes. and where the outcomes are so severe that you know there is a, a a certain willingness from the medical community to take a slightly greater risk than one might ordinarily be able to do. Um, and I think that there is hopefully lots to, lots to gain from those in terms of the therapeutic potential mm. and ultimately also in what we learn about safety and, and, and implications of, uh, to other diseases as well. So uh, we'll see how those things progress, but it is yes. an exciting time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot of very interesting innovation out there and, and you've touched on some of it there. Um Taking it back to, to um, I suppose people who are thinking about a career in the industry mm-hmm. and and you know there may be people sitting out there who've been listening to this thinking this sounds fascinating I really want to get involved. What advice would you give to people starting out on their career or thinking about a career mm-hmm. in, in industry? Really.
1: So I think one of the, one of the things to remember is that um, people who are recruiting uh, are probably and this is this is this is. The, the, this is wrong but realistic it's probably not all of their job yes right so someone like me who when I when we've got a new position to fulfill uh, I want to spend as much time as I can finding the right candidates but I I've got a lot of other things I'm trying to do at the same time and I wish I could you know think about it in a more structurally way when I'm when I'm doing looking through CVs and trying to find things I am I'm taking a relatively headline view of things mm-hmm. and so I think there is a, a lot of um, a lot a lot to be gained from you know, seeking kind of support and maybe even professional help in gearing up your CV. Yeah, okay. You know, because I, I didn't do it, and I spent a long time firing out random CVs mm-hmm. and telling people what I did in a postdoc four years ago that had absolutely no relevance whatsoever to what the company was doing. And I think you can probably do a bit better with thinking about what that, what you're actually applying for. Yes. And and what are the people who are going to be seeing that CV for the first time? what do they want to see, mm. you know, what is it that they're interested in? And from someone like my perspective, you know, it's, you know, we, we want really, really highly talented and motivated people. There are certain skills that we're going to need. And sure. we, try to, we try to call them out. We try to put them in the adverts. And honestly, if they're not in there some these days because it's it is really competitive, then it's difficult for us to justify progressing that, 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 that yeah. career, that, that CV rather, in our, in our recruitment round. So we kind of need it right up, front centre, this is something that I know you do, that I can do too, and that I can bring to, to immediately, you know, help you grow and support yeah. your uh, progression. So I think it is worth going and talking to people who know about CVs, mm-hmm. who know what a good one looks like and what it doesn't, and, and have got the time to support you putting the right things on there for the right job that you're yes. applying for. Um, and I think, yeah, 90% of the things I sent out when I was trying to look into transitioning from academia to industry were... Just completely thrown straight, and straight in the dust. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. The second thing I think is, as, as maybe I kind of uh, touched on, you know, the, a lot of the reasons why you end up being able to be successful in getting a position is not just the CV, it's also about the network. The of course. And Cambridge is a particularly good place, but there are lots of other places you know, globally and even in the UK where there's a similar kind of density of really great companies all, mm. all working on the same thing. And the likelihood is you're going to know how these things work. You might know somebody there. It might not be even at the same company, but you can probably learn a bit about those companies. And it's not just about, you know, finding the person who's going to give you the job because you happen to know them or you mates with somebody they know. It's also just about that ability to understand what those companies are doing and what mm-hmm. they're looking for at any one time. So it isn't just a question of kind of cheating. It's not nepotism. It's actually just about your ability. Yes. To learn from your colleagues who are in the same position or, or in different positions in their career um, about what the industry that you're hoping to move into is actually doing and what they're thinking about so I think it's worth having that opportunity and that's what I did when I was you know looking to talk to people like Chris here I, I wanted to know what, what I was yeah. doing how are they how are they looking you know to the next year of their kind of growth at that stage uh, and was it a place mm-hmm. I could work and contribute and um, I think that helped a little bit at least from my perspective to Position myself yes. as somebody who would, might might be interesting to the company. I think they're both really interesting points. I think you know leveraging
0: your network is really underutilized and really powerful and even if you think you don't have a network,
1: you'd be amazed what your mate's uncle does. Yeah. If you just <laughs> ask, you know? exactly, yeah. yeah, and I'm not somebody who, I don't, I feel uncomfortable with the word network. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, if, if, if it's a networking event, that kind of, it's <laughs> sure, yeah. a little bit jittery, even though I know now, of course, with a slightly yeah. more experience, that there's so much to be learned from yeah, those sorts yeah, yeah. of events. And, um, but it isn't a, um, it isn't just about, as I say, cheating. It's kind of about just, Learning and yes. uh, are getting a better perspective because the, these sorts of big shifts that I, I, I try to describe when I go from different, you know, fully academic to intermediate to full industry, you know, there is so much about those culture changes that you just you can't really be told mm-hmm. in its entirety. But you can get a little bit, you can get a little bit of way along and understand a little bit more about how those groups are functioning and what's important to them, and, uh, and I think that can make a big difference to how you position yeah. yourself as a as an applicant. I think it's a great piece of advice for us to finish on. <laughs> Good. okay. Glad to get up Benedict,
0: thank you very much for your time.
1: All right. Thanks
0: a lot, Tom. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery. And don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent and their mission to make herring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.